0: Thing, on the uh, preaching and the hearing of his word today. Father, we thank you today. We thank you that you have given us a promise, not only of a, an inter- eternal inheritance, an eternal promise of heaven and a protected salvation, but also the promise of your daily presence as we go through a life of suffering, as we go through this world that is filled with sin and offenders. We pray, God, that you would cause our hearts to be drawn closer to our eternal promise and given confidence as we face the difficulties in this life, that we know that you have allowed those to come into our life for our good and for your ultimate glory so that we would long for your presence and share the hope that lies within us to those who wonder how we suffer in this life with joy. That's inexpressible and full of glory, as Peter talks about. God, we pray that you would be glorified, you would be made much of, magnified, and exalted in the way in which we learn of your great mercy today, as we learn how to respond to those who offend us because of the great mercy that you've shown us in our offense against you and Christ's redemption that purchased us and brought us great forgiveness. God, Minister to our hearts so that we would exalt your name today. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. And if someone is working the thermostat for me, you could turn that down about two degrees. It would be very helpful at this moment to do that. (laughs) I'm thankful to see all of you here today. I'm thankful to see so many people here today as we come to this text in Peter. Um, Again, we're here by God's sovereign choice at the text in which we have arrived at this morning, and you're here by providence. And so if if this is convicting, if this is encouraging, if this is edifying, it is because God wants you here today to hear this. But there are a few things actually harder to hear than what we're going to hear Peter call us to do today in 1 Peter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12, and listen to God's word to us this morning in this passage. I'm going to begin at verse 8, actually, just to follow through with what we talked about last week. Peter tells us, commands us here to sum up all of you. And he's speaking to Christians, all of you saints, all of you chosen ones, all of you living stones called out by God. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted and humble in spirit. And that was a command basically to reflect Christ in our Fellowship in our in the family of God, in our brotherhood. And then he moves on to verse nine and says this. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it for or because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's calling for us to do something very difficult and apart from God's supernatural grace, impossible. And that grace makes us remember what God has done for us that was impossible. He has forgiven us. He has blessed his offenders through Christ's sacrifice. Peter calls for us to bless those who offend us this morning as Christians. Blessing our offenders actually goes against our sinful human flesh. What do we want when we are offended? What do we want? We want revenge. We want payback. King Louis the 12th of France, understood this when he said this, and Napoleon quoted him, nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemies. We like revenge. Our flesh cries out for it. And even Hollywood understands it, doesn't it? Hollywood understands man's desperate desire to seek payback or to seek revenge. And and they do so, they call it justice in the movies. We see it in movies like True Grit, right? We see it in the Many, 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 many Rambo movies, right? But it is a, certainly a distorted view of justice. It, but it's, it's basically man's simple way of trying to put things back in balance or bring about justice by seeking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in reality, according to the Scriptures, if sinners really understood justice biblically, we would be terribly afraid of true justice. Justice says... That if a man is guilty, if a man has offended you, a man has committed a crime against you, he deserves a just penalty. And God, God's word says that we're all guilty. Every one of us are guilty of offending a holy and a righteous God. We are born guilty. We're born sinners. And then we fall in love with sin and we pursue sin and we offend God constantly from birth. We all deserve God's just and righteous eternal justice and wrath. It's what we deserve. But we don't want what we deserve, do we? We want mercy from God, not justice. When it comes to God's judgment, we don't want his justice. We want his mercy. We want what we do not deserve, which is mercy. But somehow we forget about mercy when we're offended by others. We forget about God's great mercy toward us. When our friend, our brother, or our co-worker offends us, we demand justice. We want the eye for an eye. Peter is rebuking that this morning in us because he knows this will lead to destruction. And this is not also what God has called us to salvation for and left us here on the earth. He's left us here to be a reflection of Jesus in, in 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12, you could probably associate the offenders that he's talking about with the previous text as we went from chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3. He's probably talking about the offenders as as being the unbelievers, the Gentiles, that's talked about in chapter 2, and the evil government in chapter 2, and the abuse of employers in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he could even be talking about the unsafe spouses. And if, if these were not difficult enough, in the context, in the immediate context of verse eight, he could even be speaking about sinning brothers in the church, which will destroy fellowship. And it's what Peter warned about in verse eight, why he commanded us to live in harmony and seek peace and be humble. Peter doesn't really specify who the offenders are. He actually just specifies how they offend in verse nine. Look what it says. Don't or Not. We are not to return evil for evil. So obviously, the offenders are those who seek our evil, seek evil against us, and they insult us. Evil and insulting is what these these offenders are. They're, They're evil insulters. Evil is the desire to seek someone's harm, seeking an inward desire to hurt someone, and seeking outward actions to make it manifest. That's what he's talking about. And what Peter's teaching us today is that Christians are commanded to react differently to that. We are commanded to respond to our offenders, not with confidence in vengeance, not with confidence in our ability to defend ourselves, but our confidence is in God. Peter tells us in verse nine that we must not do something. We must not respond like the world. We must respond like our Lord Jesus. Look what it And there it says, do not return evil for evil. And again, this evil that he's talking about here was the the attitude of those in the world and the attitude of our flesh, which desires payback. If I'm hurt by you, I want to get above that and I want to hurt you worse. I want to bring it back with vengeance. It's an internal desire and it's also an outward act here. Don't return the kind of things that are being done to you to your enemies, when we're mistreated, we cannot seek revenge, is what he's telling us. We must not seek revenge or harm of our enemies. And, and listen, that's, that's easy to say but hard to do. When your enemy is an unbeliever, we, we almost can justify our, our attitude. We're like, yeah, that pagan, he did me dirty, so I'm going to cut him off. I'm going to hurt him back. That is a sinful pagan feeling in our flesh that's rising up. He's saying we're not to reflect the the ways that we were redeemed from, the ways of our forefathers that Peter talks about, we we're to reflect the, the work of Christ and what Christ did. We don't seek revenge. Instead, we entrust our lives, as Jesus did, to our faithful judge, God the Father, who cares for us and calls us into a ministry in the world to minister blessings to our enemies, just as Christ did. Look what Christ did in 1 Peter 2, While he was being reviled, while he was being slandered, while he was being falsely accused of being a false teacher, being a false messiah, what did he do? He did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted that God had a sovereign and perfect plan for his suffering to bring about the redemption of those who would repent of their sins and trust in his atoning work on the cross and his perfect life. Look at Hebrews 12. Turn to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. This is what we are to reflect. We are not to return evil. We are to reflect Christ. We are not to return evil like the world, but we are to respond like our Lord here in 12, 2. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy, notice, who for the joy... Set in front of him, before him, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy of bringing about the redemption of God's children. He endured the cross. He faced suffering for us, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You will not grow weary and lose heart when you suffer the reviling or the evil from others when you remember that you're here as, as Christ's representative. You are here to lead men and women to the glorious mercy of God in Christ. That He went to the cross to redeem them. That He went there to take their place and He suffered for them so they would have peace with God. That's what we're here to represent when we return, not evil for evil, but we respond like our Lord. Look at verse, 13, or verse 14 of chapter 12 in Hebrews. Here's what we're also called to do in our reflection of Jesus to the world. Instead of returning evil, we are to pursue peace with all men, not just Christians. We're to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We are to pursue peace. Now, the idea here in pursuit is somewhat the idea of Peter. When Peter talks about seeking peace later on in verses 10 through 12, Seeking peace or pursuing peace actually has to do with the idea of hunting it down. And the, and the contrast in Peter is this. Just like you like to hunt down your enemies and seek revenge, that kind of zeal, that kind of passion, that kind of emphasis you have in your life and impetus you have to go after them, you need to be focusing on doing something for them that's better than that. You need to be pursuing them, teaching them that there is a way to peace. There is reconciliation with God. There is a way to, for them to repent and to be changed. So you need to hunt them down and look for a way to present to them that peace comes through the work of Christ. And you will not see that if you're seeking their hurt, if you're seeking their evil. If you're pursuing evil or in return for the evil they have given to you, you're not pointing, them out, pointing out to the fact that they, have, they are in need of God's peace. They are in need of God's grace just as you were in need of God's grace. As he pursued you and brought you peace. Now, next, go back in first Peter three, nine. Peter tells us something else that we must not do. He tells us that we must not respond with the words of the world, but with the words of Jesus. We must not respond with the words of the world, but with the words of Jesus. In verse nine, he says, we are not to give basically an insult back for an insult. Now, the idea here is this word insult is is abusive language or railings, or cursings, or harmful speech that hurt people. We're not supposed to go around basically trying to curse these people, speak ill of these people, and hurt these people. Rather, we are to speak something to these people that would actually benefit these people. But what James, in James chapter 3, turn there. What James teaches us is somewhat what Peter is saying here. In James 3, 6... James and the bulk of the New Testament, you see it in Ephesians four also, um, the Bible teaches that our tongues, our lips, are meant for, for one of well, basically two purposes: You have a mouth for one reason. You know what it is? what 's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The way you do that is you use your mouth to either edify others or evangelize the lost. That's the two, that, is, that is the purpose of, of having this thing in front of our face. It's not just to eat. It's to feed others. It's to build up others. The tongue is meant to either edify or evangelize, but due to indwelling sin, our tongue becomes like a weapon instead. And the Bible teaches that not ought to be so. That should not be so. Look what it says in 3.6. six. And the tongue is a fire. The very wor- world of iniquity The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And it's set on fire by hell, by death, by the grave. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. But with it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth the same opening from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Peter will tell us, no, it should not. When you are insulted, when you are abused verbally by others, our fleshly, sinful desire is to come back with harsh words that really put them in their place. That is set on fire by hell. That is demonic thinking. That's what that is. That is not Christ-exalting use of your tongue that God has called us to do. God's called us to respond differently by using our tongue to either edify or evangelize our enemies isn 't that what Jesus did? Did Jesus use his tongue in any other way? He was either He was edifying either correcting his his disciples or teaching his disciples in a positive way, or he was evangelizing those that were lost and needed a shepherd back in first peter three nine if you turn back there, Peter tells us instead of insulting. We must not respond with insult for insult. Instead of insulting, we must give a blessing instead of a cursing or of cursing or seeking vengeance on others. We are to give a blessing. Now, this can be hard to understand when you read this um, because we, we again, we, we, we fight against this, I think, with our flesh. But Peter's actually telling us here, we must give a blessing to those who are our greatest enemies, Those who seek our harm physically and those who intend on harming us mentally and verbally. We're to seek their best. Peter commands us to give a eulogio. The word blessing there is eulogio or eulogia. We get the word eulogy from this. We use that word when we talk at people's funerals about how great that guy was. We praise him. That's a eulogy. We eulogize them. And Peter's telling us we're to give a eulogy with our lips instead of insults. To eulogize, again, means to praise or to speak well of others. And in this case, he's talking about praising and speaking well of our offenders, of our enemies. But when I read that, and I know that you're thinking this too, you're asking yourself probably, how can we speak well of those who do evil? We don't speak well of their evil. That's not what he's saying. We don't endorse or bless wrongdoing. We don't endorse and bless sinful behavior, but we are to speak well of the people who are doing these evils, remembering that who we are in Christ is only by God's mercy, because we are ones who spoke evil against God. We were at enmity with God. We were God's enemies. But God spoke to us through Christ and redeemed us in grace. But I think the way we learn to speak evil or speak well of those who do evil is is by following Christ's teaching and example. That's exactly what Peter does. That's why Peter, Peter's teaching like this. He's preaching, preaching what Jesus taught. He's teaching what Jesus taught in Luke 6. If you'll turn there with me. We're going to dwell there for just a few moments. In Luke 6. Peter's teaching and, and understanding of this whole concept, this whole command, comes straight from the example and the doctrine that he saw in, in Christ, taught and illustrated in his example. In, in Luke 6, we're going to read through a big portion of this together this morning, but in Luke 6, Jesus teaches us that we can bless, or we can eulogize, or we can speak well of our offenders, we can bless our offenders, we can do something good for our offenders by number one, loving them with agape, godlike love, loving them with godlike love. That's what he says in Luke six, twenty-seven. Six twenty-seven says, But I say to you. I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Agape is what he's calling for. Love your enemies like God loves his enemies, which is what you were. Remember that. Never forget who you are in Christ. You are one who had been redeemed by God's mercy. You were his enemy. You got what you didn't deserve. He says, love them like God loves you, not based on their loveliness, not based on their goodness, but based on your desire to seek their best. That's what agape does. Agape loves sacrificially for the good of others. That's what Christ did when he came into the world. This love is expressed in verses 29 through 30. Look at that there in 6, 29 through 30. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back show agape to those who abused you in every form and every way. The reason I think this is true for us, to, I mean, this is a command for us to do this, and Christ did it himself when he went to the cross. It was for the good of others. And for us, it opens up a door of evangelism because people can't understand why we respond like this. They, they don't see the big picture. They just see this this man who who wants to to do something good for the one that has been abusing them, and they, they can't quite understand it. That's not humanly rational. This will bring about a great rebuke for those who are Christians sinning against you, too. When they do you evil, when they do something to offend you, and you do them good, and you seek their good, and you love them, and you pursue them, and you do things for them, it is overwhelming to them. and They want to repent. They'll want to cry out for God's mercy to understand your great love for them and That love is found through Christ. But when we do good to those who abuse us that are our enemies, that are unbelievers, I think it opens a door of evangelism is what I think it does, which is really the, the way we do ultimate good. The way we really bless our enemies is we not only love them in our deeds, but we love them with our words. But sometimes I think we need to understand those two go together. I have an example of this in my own life. A friend of mine, my dear friend, who's now with the Lord, and Gary Carter was his name. Gary and I had a, a great opportunity to witness to a Jehovah's Witness who was an elder in the Jehovah's Witness cult. And he came to, to this place where we Gary and I were meeting, and he came and he began to share things with us about his belief system. And immediately, he began to insult our belief system. And immediately, he began to seek to do us harm by trying to lead us away from the gospel to a false gospel, a false Jesus and a false spirit. And then he insulted us even further by saying, if you guys are right, why aren't you doing anything that displays the love of Jesus? Why aren't you going to my house and doing anything? And he went on to rail against us for a while. A few days later, I get a call from Gary in the middle of peach season. He's a farmer who owns a peach orchard. And he calls me and he says, hey, Randy, I want to go to Purcell to see Dan, the elder, the Jehovah's Witness. I said, okay, Gary. He comes by and says, I've got him a bushel of peaches. I'm going to go to his house, and I want to give them to him. He took them. We we went to his house. We missed Dan. We didn't see the man. But Gary brought this, seeking his good, seeking his best. Gary wasn't endorsing the man's teaching. Gary wasn't endorsing the man's evil intentions. Gary was seeking to have a door of evangelization through his actions, by blessing his enemy who insulted him. And it did make an impact on this man. Later on in the story of this this conversation with this man, a few months later, the man did the unthinkable by God's sovereign grace. He came by unexpected one day to meet Gary and I. It happened that Gary and I were together that day by God's providence. And he brought his nine-year-old little girl, who was a fourth-generation Jehovah's Witness. And he was actually thanking Gary for that great gift. And he was amazed by it. And at the same time, God opened a great door for us to evangelize this nine-year-old girl who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in her life. And there was uninterrupted evangelism going on. This was an example of loving our enemy, blessing the one who did us evil. Now, I want you to understand when I talk about blessing our enemies, loving our enemies. What I don't believe Jesus means, what I don't believe the Bible teaches, is that we are to bless sinful behavior. We don't bless sinful behavior in our offenders. God has given us something even in first Peter to to take care of that situation. Um, God's given us authorities that are ordained by God to hold back evil and reward that which is good. And those authorities should be informed when evil intentions are being focused on someone. Those those authorities should be notified. If the offense that someone brings to you is an illegal offense, if someone abuses your child, right, you are to take that to the God-ordained authorities to deal with that. The Apostle Paul did that himself when he was falsely accused and falsely treated by a corrupt government in Acts 22 25. He appealed to his Roman citizenship to deal with this legally. So this, this isn't teaching us that we're to overlook sinful actions in the sense that we ignore them and we let them you know, let people abuse us in an illegal way, in a harmful way, that way. No, it's, it's our intention of our heart toward the person who is offending us. And even in that, when it's an illegal action against you, you can still show agape. You can still bless that person. And that person can be penalized as well. There's an example of that. A lady that used to live down the road from me, she was in a, the Geronimo shootings back, in, I think, in the late 70s or 80s, I can't remember which, and she was shot in the face by one of the, the assailants there. And she later on went to Lexington Prison to seek out those men and grant them forgiveness and share the gospel of Jesus with them. So they did deserve their penalty in prison, but she didn't hold in her heart anything against them. She blessed them by forgiving them. And again, if if we're talking about offenses in, in an illegal way, which we'd be hopefully talking only about unbelievers offending us that way, but if we're talking about how to deal with offenders who are Christians... God has also provided a divine authority to deal with that as well. He has ordained the church to deal with those who offend us openly and in a sinful way. We do have that great blessing in Matthew 18 that we can go to them privately. We can go to them with another brother. We can go to them with another even after that. And then finally, if they are unrepentant, that offender, the greatest blessing we can do to them is cause them to realize that their offense has offended God and hurt the church and put them out of fellowship. That is a blessing. Because for the one who does repent and believe, he is restored and received and encouraged. And God is glorified because the church is made pure. So correction itself is a blessing. I'm not saying that we don't correct offenders. We do. That's part of the blessing. But we do that out of their seeking their good. Agape. Okay? Jesus goes on to tell us here in, in Luke 6 that we can bless our offenders by praying for If they're unbelievers, pray for their salvation. If they're believers, we're praying for their sanctification. Look at 628. Bless those who curse you. Pray. Pray for those who mistreat you. What a great blessing. We can actually do what Peter was calling for. We can pray for them or we can eulogize them before God. And again, what that means is we can bless or eulogize our offenders by speaking well of them to God. Again, by by praying for them, we're reflecting the love of Christ and his intercession for them. So we can eulogize, we can speak well of them to God. Again, we're not speaking well of their evil deeds. We're speaking well of them, that they need a Savior. All the time remembering that God was interceding for us through Christ because we had offended him. Christ prayed for us in John 17. Jesus also teaches us here in Luke. 631 through 36. The ultimate way to bless our offenders is to forgive them. Just as God has forgiven us. How did God forgive us? He forgave us mercifully. And through Christ's atonement, Christ's work. So we forgive them. And I think in our forgiveness of them, we need to be pointing them to the ultimate source of forgiveness. The ultimate source that they need for repentance and belief. They need to look to Jesus to find forgiveness. But here in in Luke 631... Jesus teaches that we need to forgive them just as God has forgiven us. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who "...from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is mercy. We are to forgive them in a way that reflects the mercy of God that we have already received as Christians." We do these things that Peter's calling for in remembrance of what God has already done for us as his offenders through Christ. Peter understood the blessing of forgiveness in a very personal way. Stay, or stay in the Gospels, but turn to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we see that Peter understood the blessing of forgiveness personally. I have to hurry because I have much to say beyond this. But I, I cannot neglect this. This is key to understanding how we are to bless those who bless or give us evil, seek our, seek our evil and, and hurt us. We are to bless them in a way that would reflect the love of God in Christ. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, he doesn't mean, you know, 70 times seven plus one. You know, that's too much. You're done. No, he's actually saying he's exaggerating what Peter is saying. And understand this. Peter most likely is coming to Jesus trying to get kudos from Jesus. He's trying to look mag- just really basically more gracious than what he really is but he thinks he's pretty gracious because peter peter's like us he has the tendency to compare himself with others not jesus so he comes up says hey should i forgive them seven times knowing that the rabbis taught you could forgive your brother or sister three times on the fourth time you don't have to forgive them anymore so peter's saying look i'm greater than men and jesus says you're not greater than god it's not seven times, it's seven times seventy. It's seven multiplied over and over and over. Christ is amplifying man's view of forgiveness for Peter. Look further in Matthew 18, and Jesus is going to illustrate how we should view our offense, the offenses of others compared to the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 23. I'm going to read through this rather fast, but stay with me. 23 through 35. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, he's talking about forgiveness. He's going to say, here's how you forgive. And so for this reason, I'm going to use this illustration. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me or what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. And and by the way, that payment would be possible for in this case, he could repay his his uh, fellow slave because the amount was small enough. Verse 30 says, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he, what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that, that, that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him, which would be eternally. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The illustration is obvious. If we've been forgiven a great debt, how could we not forgive a small offense by another fellow human? We've been forgiven a great debt against a holy and righteous God that would be impossible for us to pay back. Yet we will not be merciful toward those who offend us, that are fellow slaves. It's ridiculous. In the time this was written, 10,000 talents, the 10,000 talents that this man owed to the king, to the good king would be translated today to about 12 to $20 million is what he owed that man. He owed him. And get this, King Herod, on his greatest yearly income tax statement, made 900 talents a year. So this is an exorbitant amount. This is an amount of money that you could never possibly repay. It would be impossible to pay back the debt that he owes the good king. And that is the case for us, is it not? The good king has paid a debt for us we could never pay with a a price that we could never afford? Verse 26, it's interesting. Here's, Here's man in his unregenerate state. He tries to pay off the king. I can work for my redemption. I can work for my salvation. But no, the king says, that's impossible. And instead, he absorbs the debt for him. The king absorbs the debt himself. You see? Do you see Jesus in that? Jesus did that for us on the cross. We had offended a holy and righteous king. We have offended him from our birth. We owed him everything. We could never pay back one thing because of our indwelling sin, our total depravity. Yet on the cross, Jesus paid it for us anyway. It's a great mercy. Peter understood this kind of forgiveness because it was Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest that was following him saying, I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I will be with you to the end, Jesus. And immediately out of Jesus' presence, three times he denies his Savior, his Lord, and his friend. And the last time he does so, he does so within earshot and eye in, in view of Jesus himself. It says that Jesus cast his eye toward him. Jesus looked at Peter when he denied him the last time, Peter went out from there and wept bitterly. And yet God, in great mercy, hunted Peter down in John twenty-one, hunted him down at the end, and restored him three times and reconciled him, because Peter went out and wept bitterly, bitterly in repentance, because he's offended his holy and righteous King, and his King paid his penalty on the cross, the debt he could not pay, the debt that we all owe. And if anybody's here this morning who hasn't received that kind of forgiveness, you can by simply turning in faith to Jesus and turning away from rebellion against God and a war against his word, a war against his law, and turning in faith to Christ. Jesus will absorb the entire sin debt that you owe. And he will reconcile you to God. That is Peter's point in the way in which we treat others is to point them to the great forgiveness that we have in Christ. When we don't return insult for insult and reviling for reviling, we reflect the love of God. And our confidence is that God will save those who turn to Christ. And so we are to stand as a witness in this world, a light that is not hidden. And magnifying and glorifying the work of Jesus by the way we treat others. Peter's point, I think, and Jesus' point back there in, in, in Matthew 18 is this, that in view of the great sin debt that we owe to God, how could we not forgive others? But back in Peter 3.9, part B, Peter's going to elaborate, elaborate on why we should and must bless our offenders. The answer to why, the why question here, is based on our own forgiveness. Peter tells us to bless our offenders, number one, because this is your very purpose. This is our very purpose. This is why we exist, is to reflect the work of God in Christ through us. The internal work of thanksgiving in our heart for his great forgiveness and mercy is to be reflected in the way we deal with our offenders, because that's, we're going to reflect how God deals with us through Christ. This is your very purpose. Verse 9b says, For you were called, kaleo, called out, saved, chosen, picked out by God, elect, You were saved for a purpose, he tells us, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Peter says we're called for this very purpose in some translations. You were called to salvation through Christ's suffering for a purpose that we were reflected in heaven one day, but it's going to be magnified on the earth today. Because you have confidence that God didn't save you and leave you here to flounder. He left you here in a world of suffering and offenders To reflect the glory of his son and your confidence in his work. If you you read the text in verse nine, you read this for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And and you have to ask a question. What is the very purpose? What is the purpose according? Actually, not to verse nine or even verses nine through twelve. But what is the very purpose of your salvation? What's the very purpose of your forgiveness? What's the very purpose of God's love for you? According to first Peter. The entire book. Look at verse or chapter 2, verse 9 to see the very purpose. Peter tells us what the very purpose of our salvation is. In 2 9. Here's why you've been called. Here's why you've been picked out. Here's why you've been saved and left in a corrupt and offensive world. But you were chosen, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? He tells us so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light you are a picked out people you are a hand picked people a people loved by god called and chosen mercied by god so that you would proclaim his greatness to the world god is concerned about his name being praised he wants the glory He wants to be magnified. He wants to be testified to throughout the world. And the greatest testimony of his goodness and mercy and grace is the redemption of his children. So he calls us to stand out in the world and proclaim his excellencies. That means his attributes of mercy and grace and justice. Proclaim those to the world that he's placed us in. And proclaim them to Gentiles, is what he mentions. Proclaim them to governments. Proclaim them to employers. Proclaim them to our spouses. Proclaim them to our brothers and our offenders. Proclaim to them what we have received internally in an outward way through our love and mercy. We proclaim to them when they're kind to us. That's easy. It's easy to proclaim God's attributes and his goodness when other people are kind to us. But when they're offending us, when they are hurting us, we are still called to talk about God's mercy that we find in Christ and express that to those who offend us. And the reason we do that, Peter will tell us next week as we go further into the text here, that if we do this, people will see the hope that lies within us. And that hope that lies within us is our confidence, not in our flesh, not in our ability to do this, but our confidence is in God who works in us. God who works in us and promises to protect us eternally. Our our inheritance is protected in heaven, guarded, guarded by God, but he also promises to be with us as, a, as we witness on the earth. That's what Peter's talking about here. God's promised eternal life to us. That's, that's in scripture. We know that. But that's not the promised inheritance that Peter's talking about in verse 9. And it's not the reason for our calling either. Because that would be a works-based idea. He's calling us to bless offenders and love our brothers. Not because it earns something with God. But because that is the very purpose in which God has ordained us to be in the world. To magnify his goodness and grace to all, all those around us. God has saved you for a divine purpose, not to earn anything through these things. You don't earn your inheritance. It's granted to you. But because it's granted to you, you respond differently to everyone in the world. That's the point. The reason and the motive that we basically go out and do these things, that we love our enemies and we don't revile them in return and don't give them evil for evil, because of what verse 9 talks about. Verse 9 connects us down actually, though, to verse 12. Look at verse 12. We're talking about the very purpose and the, the blessing that we inherit. This is, the, this is the blessing in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend their prayers. That's our inheritance. The blessed inheritance referred to there in verse 9 is the promise of God's presence when we suffer for our obedience he doesn't abandon us he actually gives us a life that's worth living it's what peter will say he tells us that he has promised his promised inheritance will be with us when we follow these commands and we suffer for christ's sake you see that in three ten through 12 peter tells us number two our our motive for blessing our offenders is our hope in god's promise look what it says For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The one who desires life is the one who's been granted true life, okay? The one who's been blessed by God, mercied by God, forgiven by God. And as a result of that, he wants to keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away. And this word, turn away, means to lean out away from, avoid at all costs evil, harm, revenge is the idea Turn away from seeking revenge and do good. That's agape, that's forgive, show mercy. He must pursue or hunt down, is the idea again here in the Hebrew from the quote from Psalm 34, hunt down peace and pursue it. We hunt it down by taking them to the cross and showing them this is how peace came to us. This is why we behave differently to you and the world. But the reason we do that is because of what God's already done for us, because of the inheritance of eternal life. That promise changes Our perspective of our temporal suffering. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He is looking favorably on us. His ears listen to our prayers. They attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those who live and love evil, God is against. Those who live and love righteousness, God hears and watches over. And who can love and, and live in righteousness? Only those who have been forgiven By God's grace. Verse 12 tells us that we obey God's command. When we obey God's command, we know that God is looking and listening. And God is pleased with what he's seeing because we're reflecting Jesus in the world in which he called us to. Verse 12 tells us God's promised blessing is basically this. It's his abiding presence when we go through suffering in this earthly pilgrimage. God's presence motivates us to desire life in spite of the suffering because we can trust in God to use it for our good and His glory. God's presence here that verse 12 talks about motivates us to use our mouth to declare God's mercy by forgiving others, seeking peace with them. It motivates us to go out of our way, avoiding revenge, avoiding evil, and doing good, showing God's agape toward those who offend us because God has shown us His agape. God's presence and care motivates us to seek peace, hunt it, by seeking reconciliation with our enemies so that we can point them to the reconciling work of Christ, who reconciled the greatest of enemies, me, against him. Peter tells us that those who respond to God's commands that are in First Peter, they respond with obedience, they will receive a great blessing. The great blessing they receive is that God's presence is with them while they go through suffering. It's, it's, when suffering comes, it's not because of something bad we've done. It's because of something God has ordained. And if you go through suffering for Christ's sake, if you go through in obedience to God, obeying what He's commanded, and you suffer for it, you are to be thankful. Because it's God who's working through you. And the Spirit of God's glory and grace will set on you and cause you to rest. Look at 1 Peter 4 says, 412. It says, don't, don't be afraid when we go through suffering. You know that you have the promise of God's ears and God's eyes. They are looking on you with favor because you're reflecting God's Son in the way in which you suffer in obedience to God's Word. 12 says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you. Why does it come? Why does the fiery trial come it's for our good it's for the testing for your testing it tries it burns off the dross and the love of this world causes us to love our savior seek his kingdom not our own seek to please him and bring him glory don't seek comfort and basically sin we seek to give our lives in a way that would glorify god but that that won't happen until pressure comes when testing comes When suffering comes, whatever you believe in is what you cling to. And if you believe in your ability to get yourself out of things, if you believe in your ability to live in this life and have a good life without Christ, you're going to have that burn off. And God will cause you to come down to the point all you have is Jesus. And that's all you need. That's why the saints in other countries go through suffering and they're thankful because it purifies their soul, purifies the church. It keeps out those who would corrupt it with their influence of selfishness he says this testing comes to you as though don't be surprised that it comes as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation it's praise to god if you are reviled for the name of christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests on you you're blessed If you're persecuted for honoring God's word, God's eyes are toward you. God is tender toward you. God is caring for you because you are a reflection of your Lord. When you're standing up for what's right and you're being offended and you're being hurt and you're turning to Jesus and you're calling on him for grace and you're expressing that grace through mercy and forgiveness of those who offend you, you're reflecting the work of God in you. You're reflecting your own forgiveness and your thankfulness for it, even when you suffer for righteousness sake. You can have confidence when you do that, that God promises to be with you and use that suffering for his glory and for your good. You realize, according to Romans eight twenty-eight, nothing evil ever happens to Christians. Nothing evil. All things, what they mean for evil, God means for good for those who are called by God, set apart through Christ's atoning work on the cross and granted faith and repentance. All things are working to either burn off the dross, make us cling to the cross alone for our hope, confidence in God alone, or they're working in a way that would bring God much glory and praise. But God is always working in the lives of His children. God is always attentive to our prayers as we walk in obedience, we can know even if suffering comes and trials come, he hears us, he watches over us, and he allows this for a divine purpose, to bring him glory as we reflect the work of Christ, even when we are offended, even when we are offended. Because we have offended him greatly and Christ came to reconcile us to him. We can therefore respond to those who offend us with forgiveness and grace And we can reach out to them, and we can restore them, we can hunt them down and pursue peace with them, because that's what God has done for us in Christ. We do that all out of an internal desire, out of thankfulness for what He has done. Let's pray that God will do that to us this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have promised us Your abiding presence in the midst of suffering. You didn't promise that we would be delivered from suffering physically, but one day, We'll be delivered eternally. Because of that great promise, we can have great confidence in your work in us to accomplish your glorious work in the world in which you placed us. We thank you for that. We thank you for each saint here, God, today as they they walk in obedience to your commands in 1 Peter. We pray that as they do so, their confidence would grow, that they would grow in understanding, they would grow in thankfulness, that they would illustrate to the world around them that they know Their confidence is in your sovereign grace. We thank you for your mercy in Christ's name. Amen. If you know this uh, version of Amazing Grace by Chris Tomlin, please join in with me.